the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. This is a three-part podcast on the World War II flying and prisoner of war history of Flight Lieutenant Robert Neil Lindsay. Neil flew with Bomber Command and, after being shot down, was a prisoner of war in Germany. The story in the recordings by Neil Lindsay in this particular podcast, and all three of them, were told to Air Vice Marshal Peter Scully, retired on the 5th of December in 1996. Now, in this third and final part of the series of podcasts, Neil will talk to us about his time as a prisoner of war in Germany, his association with the Great Escape, his forced march through Germany in bitter weather before his liberation and return home. After being shot down, I was placed in St. Lernbergers, Crankhouse Hospital in Essen. This appeared to be a military hospital where all the patients appeared to be servicemen or slave workers. One night, there was an air raid alert and all the patients were shifted to the air raid shelters in the basement. They thought it quite amusing to see me on the receiving end of our own bombs. There was no discrimination in relation to treatment to the patients. After a fortnight, I was transferred to a prison cell on a Luftwaffe aerodrome near Dortmund. During the night, whilst trying to cut through a thick iron bar with the two-inch hacksaw blade, a futile task, I witnessed an air raid on Duisburg, seven miles northwest. I could hear the roar of the engines of the aircraft attacking the target and saw the searchlights and the terrific amount of flak that the aircraft had to pass through. The sky appeared to be saturated with flak bursts and how aircraft got through was short of a miracle. The line shoot by aircrew, that flak was so thick we lowered our wheels and taxied over the target air, must have originated from such an occasion as this. The noise created by the aircraft, bursting bombs of flak defences, was quite daunting, especially when the flak batteries opened up alongside the aerodrome. The scene was more terrifying from the ground than I had experienced whilst in the air. When I arrived at St. Lambertus Crankhouse, I was still in my uniform. On being placed on a bed, I managed to place my escape kits under my pillow before I was stripped and searched. After my wounds were dressed, I hid the escape kits in my bandages. In my ward, there were French and Russian slave workers who had been injured during their work. There appeared to be no discrimination as far as treatment was concerned. It was all very professional. About 10 days, I asked a Frenchman who seemed to be in charge of the ward about my clothes, as I had an eye on a car which was parked close to our ward. However, next morning, about 4 a.m., I was awakened by a couple of guards and told to dress and was taken to a prison at a Luftwaffe aerodrome at Dortmund. I still had my escape kit in my bandages, which were getting soiled with constant wear. Whilst in the cell, I asked the guard if I could have my trousers mended, as it was embarrassing to walk around without a seat to my trousers. They took me to the aerodrome's tailor shop, where they did the necessary repairs. The German Luftwaffe grey was similar to the RAF battle dress grey, and it was hard to distinguish the difference. The escape kit, which contained maps and a broken hacksaw blade, which I tried to use 
on the iron bars of the cell during an air raid, which was a futile task with the two-inch blade, and the guards were checking the cell about every half hour. From Dortmund, I was taken to Julag Loft and put into a single room, which the guard informed me was like home. Once again, I was stripped and searched. On this occasion, I had split my escape gear, some of which I placed in the sole of my boot and the other in my bandage. I was left swayed only in my bandage. Shortly, the guard came back and with a grin of triumph on his face, he waved the piece of escape kit which I had tried to hide in my boot. However, they didn't bother to search my bandages. I kept these soil bandages and whenever I was moved, or likely to be subject to a search, I bandaged myself and hid my remaining kit, which I carried throughout my term as a POW. I got the idea from a film I saw on Nurse Edith Cavell, a nurse in World War I who was captured by the Germans and was shot for help in British POWs to escape. At Dulagdorf, I was subject to intense interrogation and kept in solitary confinement with limited rations, slice of black bread and ersatz coffee for breakfast, boiled and soiled potatoes and ersatz coffee lunch, slice of bread and ersatz coffee for tea. There were some phony visitors who said they represented the International Red Cross who asked operational questions, and when I refused to answer these questions, they said they were sorry and couldn't inform the International Red Cross I was a POW. There were lots of interrogations until finally, the German intelligence officer took me into his office, and it could have been an intelligence room on our state squadron station. With the latest RAF secret information on the wall, a large map of England with all the current squadrons and aerodromes on them, and finally, one, a 106 squadron history book with photos and details of 106 airmen that had been shot down. The intelligence officer told me details of my training and said we know everything and he wanted confirmation of his knowledge. My stock reply was, if you know everything, there is no need for me to tell you anything. In hindsight, the obtaining of information is logical. They know the aircraft which has a squadron signature, and there is also a written and log details in the navigators, wireless operators, and engineers' log books, if they haven't been destroyed by fire. After this final interview, I was transported by train to Starlake Lough 3, Sargon, in Silesia. There were some interesting hard luck stories from the other airmen who had been shot down and were now POWs. Starlake Lough 3, I was put into an NCO compound where Australian POWs looked after my immediate needs. Here the food position was much better, receiving one 10-pound Red Cross parcel a week, and this was supplemented by a German rye bread, margarine and other items like boiled barley, sometimes a meat ration from a horse, box jam and greens. The POWs formed food combines, one main meal a day. Some of them meant are more, most resourceful. We had plenty of cigarettes and tobacco, and later Jane organised a continual supply of churchmen's senior service cigarettes and golden cut bar and players medium tobacco for my pipe. There was also a food daco, a cigarette market for food. Both are based on points. If a combine has a surplus of, say, margarine and wants to, say, tin meat, on the day of the market, the number of tins of margarine are put at a set minimum price, and if the buyers exceed 
the number of tins available. The prices raise until the number of buyers matches the number of tins available. The same process is carried out with cigarettes. The seller is credited with the number of points the item is sold for, thus allowing him to purchase other items. I started the garden. The soil was very sandy, the camp being in a pine forest. I started trenching and added potato peelings and later planted tomatoes and pumpkin, which did quite well. Horse-drawn vehicles came into the camp with Russian drivers to empty the toilets. These vehicles were known as honey cars, and as soon as a horse raised its tail, a Red Cross box is placed under it and the manure is collected. There are many diversions in the camp, sport, basketball, cricket, softball, volleyball, etc. Lectures on all subjects, men studying for exams, theatre and various clubs relating to boats, gliding, fishing, etc. And of course, all forms of guard playing. Whilst at Sargon, two airmen from the Dambuster Squadron, AWs, they were members of Flight Lieutenant Hopkins' crew and were shot down after dropping their bomb. Flight Lieutenant Hopkins was my flight commander in 106 Squadron and I knew his rear gunner, Tony Bircher, who with the bomb aimer bailed out after their aircraft was hit. Tony landed on one side of a valley and was promptly grabbed by the civilians and strung up to a telegraph pole. Fortunately, some German soldiers came along and cut him down. The bomb aimer got as far as the Dutch border before he was caught. After a two-month stint at Sargon, all the NCO POWs were transferred to Hydercrew on the Baltic coast. Here we had big brick ovens in the centre of the hut to provide heat in the winter. The journey through Poland was most interesting as we went through fields of bumper crops of various cereals. Tunnelling was started immediately in, the, in an abrusions and toilet block, but the water table was too high, which led to difficulties in the tunnel. One of the highlights of the summer sports were the cricketing test matches played by the Aussies against the English POWs. Local ground rules had to be made, and the matches generated terrific interest. Other pastimes were making of creaky brews. If a box of jam, generally sugar beet pulp, flavoured and coloured, started to bubble on a stove, the brewing experts would start a brew, everybody contributing from their Red Cross parcels. On one occasion, the Germans conducted a slap search of the barrack and it created a dilemma as to where the brew could be hidden. One suggested in the galvanised food container, which was always kept at the entrance of the hut. This was done, and when the goons, or Germans, came in, they walked past the brew and proceeded to pull the hut apart in their search and left the brew alone. When pouring the brew from the container, it had stripped the inside of the container clean. What must it be doing to our stomachs? Some of the POWs distilled remnants of the brew for alcohol. This was used to reinforce the brew or used in a blow lamp by a dental mechanic POW who did a splendid job with teeth. On another occasion, the Gestapo came in about 4am on a surprise search and one of the goon guards was left in charge of identification papers. One of the POWs distracted him whilst another managed to seize most of the cards and put them in the toilet. Naturally, there was hell to pay and it took several months to re-identify the POWs, as many gave false names and information. The prison cells were fully occupied for several months. One night, a German plane was circling overhead, apparently mistaking the prison lights for an aerodrome. 
After several circuits, the crew decided to bail out. When they did, the Kriegies gave a, a cheer, and the captain of the aircraft misunder, misinterpreted this and sent a message to the camp congratulating us on our sportsmanship. One day, a little mouse was caught eating some of our rations. A court-martial was instituted to try the mouse for stealing Kriegies' food, a heinous crime. On being found guilty, he was sentenced to run down a tunnel with a trap at the end. The mouse did this, and on reaching the end of the tunnel, smelt the trap and jumped over it, and was free. A few nights later, I awoke with a mouse sitting on my forehead, and on sitting up, it fell into my pajama. I grabbed it, squashed it, and next morning, because of its stumpy tail, it was identified as the mouse that had been court-martialed. During winter, we built ice rinks and played ice hockey. We were able to import sporting gear as gifts from overseas. All equipment was pulled, so everybody had a chance to participate in all sports. In March of 1944, my commission came through and I was transferred back to Starlink of Sagan, just in time to help with the final arrangements of the Great Escape. I was delegated a watching stint helping to keep track of the goon guards when they came into the camp. There was much excitement when the breakout occurred and a disappointment when the air raid warning sounded. However, 75 got out and as a reprisal, Hitler ordered 50 of these to be shot. Three officers in my hut were amongst the escapees. Two of them were shot. One of them, an Australian, duly arrived back and would not believe his friends had been shot as he had shared a cell with them. At Sargon, we had some first-class theatrical productions, as amongst our fellow prisoners were Rupert Davis, ex-Fleet Air Arm, John Casson, son of Dame Sybil Thorndock, ex-Fleet Air Arm, Funk Watson, a master at miming, and several other theatrical personalities. We witnessed some American daylight air raids, and our parcels became scarcer. In the middle of winter, when we were in a big freeze, we were ordered to march west at midnight as the Russians were approaching. I piled all my gear on a ready-made sled, a stool turned upside down with runners on the bottom. When we finally got on the march in a snowstorm, the guards were very apprehensive, which the POWs made sure it remained so. One of the guards offered to tow my sled if he could put his pack on it. I kindly obliged him. Throughout the night there were crashes of gear being thrown into the forest as the guards got rid of their helmets, rifles and any surplus impedimenta. Whilst we were issued with two Red Cross parcels of food prior to departure from Star Lake 3 and as a result of freezing conditions our food was frozen solid. There was nothing to heat with, and this brought about an outbreak of what was known as the squitters, a form of diarrhoea, which became progressively worse until it reached an uncontrollable state. After forced marching for 24 hours, and my physical state reached a low ebb, when a, the POW in front of me took a step forward, I took a step forward, and when I felt I couldn't go any further, I would take a cube of sugar which seemed to infuse throughout my body and keep me going for a short time. I thought this was how exhausted animals must feel. We eventually reached a small village and some of us were billeted in the shed 
with a lot of straw on the floor, into which we collapsed utterly exhausted. During the night I felt the urge to relieve myself and found my footwear, which I had taken off, frozen stiff. I had to hold my boots close to my body in order to thaw them out. On going outside of the shed, I saw that it was bright moonlight night and everything was covered with white snow and frost. And there was a guard with a rifle standing with his feet in a big straw boots, slapping his arms trying to keep warm. I thought at least there was somebody worse off than I am. The following day, towing our sleds, we arrived in a village called Moscow. It belonged to a Baron von Arna who had been captured in North Africa. We were billeted in the stable complex. One wing had horse stalls in the centre, and in the centre were horse-drawn vehicles, sleds, etc. And the third wing was a big exercising arena for horses, and it was covered with sawdust and pine bark. The whole place was centrally heated, and we managed to have a hot shower and hot food for the first time in three days. The village square was surrounded by workshops, such as the blacksmiths, carpenters, etc., as well as the villagers' houses. The Baron's representative from the baronial home told the POWs to use the workshops for making sledges. Refugees in horse-drawn vehicles kept coming into the village. These people were fleeing from the advancing Russians and had some tragic stories to tell of. After a few days' rehabilitation, we were ordered to march again, and there was a farcical situation amongst the German guards who were taking each other's ear to make up for that which had been abandoned in the pine forest during the initial panic on leaving Saga. No sooner had we assembled to march than a thaw set in, and a German tank division came through, churning up the ice and snow on the road. All the sleds were now useless, and we had to repack our gear to carry on our backs. On one occasion, we came across an inn in a forest, and the POW seemed to be going in coming out with bottles of beer. I went in and there was a French girl handing out the bottles and I just managed to get one when she ran out. It was a good drop and as I went out the door I met Pud Davis who was a skeleton of his usual self and when he said he had missed out I gave him the rest of my bottle. Pud was an excellent entertainer in prison camp and in view of what he had done for us I was only too pleased to share the last bottle of beer with him. As the thaw had set in, it was difficult to find a dry place to bed down at night. One night I chose a pigsty. It was made of brick and had plenty of straw and had crushed grain which we supplemented our rations. We bedded down next to a fowling sow and had quite a snug night's sleep. On reaching Spremberg, we were placed in wooden rail boxcars. We had no water no light, no straw for bedding. About 40 men to a boxcar and we couldn't stretch out to lie down. Some of the men were ill with dysentery and had to use Red Cross boxes for a toilet. But with the, the jolting of the boxcar, it was a hazardous exercise, particularly for those behind the Red Cross box. When the train stopped at a siding and the doors were open, the POWs tumbled outside and dropped their trousers to relieve themselves in full view of a crowd of curious civilians. During the night we stopped alongside an engine and the driver filled whatever containers we had with rusty warm water, the first liquid we had 
for about 44 hours. When the train stopped and the POWs got out to relieve them and the order was to embark, it was quite impossible for some to do so because of their diarrhoea and dysentery. This seemed to make the guards go berser as they would go along the train firing their levers in the air and at the feet of the unfortunate POWs. We arrived at a railway station called Tarmstead, which lies about 30 kilometres northwest of Bremen. Here the Luftwaffe guards were changed to the marine guards that took their place. We then had to walk for two hours in driving rain to Marlagem, Tarmstead, and then a further six hour wait in the open, driving rain before we were stripped and searched and then allowed to go to a bear hut with sudden shavings to lie on. Food was very scarce, being allowed two slices of bread per man, a jug of hot water twice a day. Things were really primitive, no heating, no bedding, and very little food. Some brush parties were organised to get wood for heating. The goons were frustrated because the prison accounts didn't tally, and it meant standing on parade in the rain twice a day for two and a half hours whilst the goons ran on identity checks. By now the food we carried from Sargon was running out, and we heard we might get half a parcel issue in a few days. Unfortunately, the Red Cross parcels were at Lubeck, about 130 kilometres distant. In order to ease the pangs of hunger, I saved all of my cigarette butts, and first thing each morning, I would use these butts as a tobacco for my pipe. After a pipe of this tobacco, one didn't need much breath. Shortage of food was a problem and the guarding of the camp was shared by the Luftwaffe guards who were very strict and the marine guards who were reasonable as they had only been dealing with merchant navy personnel. They had rackets organised with the local farmers to bring in food such as potato eggs, crushed grain bread and some meats in exchange for such things as chocolate, cigarettes, toilet soap, coffee and tobacco. These were unobtainable amongst the local people. Naturally, the marine guards would not let the Luftwaffe guards in on their rackets and the POWs traded through the wire with the marine guards. The Luftwaffe resented this and shot a POW whilst trading with a marine guard. This poor fellow lingered for days. The International Red Cross were flying penicillin via Switzerland for this POW but unfortunately he died. The day of this incident, an RAF mosquito broke cloud cover over the camp and stopped our bread lorry and put it into a ditch. Naturally, the Germans were informed it was a reprisal for the shooting incident. At night, we could hear the bomber command passing overhead on their way to Hamburg, another German city east of the camp. Unfortunately, we witnessed a lot of the bombers being shot down. One day, we witnessed an RAF attack on Bremen. The RAF flew towards their target like a gaggle of geese, but once on their bombing run, they flew to perfection. We were getting some beds to ease the sleeping problems. After an issue of one full American Red Cross parcel each, I had to go to hospital with an attack of yellow jaundice due to an overdose of peanut butter and margarine. Whilst in hospital, I witnessed an American Air Force armada which covered the whole sky and with their fighters flying well above them, it was an impressive display of air power. Now the Allies have crossed the Rhine, there are rumours that another forced march was imminent. The rumour became fact as we were issued with two Red Cross parcels per man.
prior to leaving the camp. And prior to leaving the camp, white soap powder was spread over the parade ground forming letters POW and RAF in, in large letters and a large arrow indicating the direction we were to take. The pace of the column was kept deliberately slow. Tony Birch and his Canadian friend managed to trade some soap and a D-bar for a pram in which they piled their gear. The German lady snatched the chocolate, soap and baby and left Tony with the pram. We occasionally have to take to ditches because of air alerts. The Germans, when travelling in their staff cars, have a soldier on the front mudguard looking backwards and another soldier on the rear guard looking forwards. At the first sign of an aircraft, they dive into the ditches. The Allies have complete air control now. It was interesting to see a German jet fighter cruising along and two Spitfires from above tried to bounce it. And when the German fighter saw them, he opened his throttles and left them standing. On another occasion, a German jet came in to bomb a bridge which the Allies had seized, and the Allied gunners shot the fighter bomber down with their first burst. All the bridges we pass over have 500 kilogram bombs under them, ready to detonate, and we are marching more or less parallel to an autobahn on which the German fighters land, where they are quickly camouflaged. One night we stopped in an open field and some of the POWs were pulling straw out of a stack for bedding when a guard shot two of them. The guards are very jumpy and trigger happy. At night we hear the RAF mosquitoes patrolling the autobahns and when they drop their flares and the note of their engines change, I used to snuggle into the straw like an ostrich. On occasions we see Red Cross lorries jammed with German soldiers going to the front. Some of the guards are helpful in trading our coffee and soap for eggs and bread. On one occasion, some naval officers marched past in their pecking order. We still have our camp radio and had news bulletins every day. The local residents seem to know what is happening and are willing to trade with the POWs. The guards appeared to be less numerous and more lax. We were ferried across the yard and managed to buy that soap for bread. Where eventually arrived at a big estate owned by a shipping magnate. I bedded down in a cattle pen and went exploring. There were huge barns containing about 200 milking Frisian cattle, also well-built pigsties. I saw the Polish and Russian slave workers lined up for their evening meal. A big German frau was ladling soup into their bowls, and if they got out of line, she would clobber them with a wooden label. Next day, an armoured scout vehicle of the 11th Division of Montgomery's 2nd Army appeared in the farmyard. To us it meant the war was over and the German guards surrendered their arms to us and all the local people holding firearms, including the gamekeepers, surrendered their arms. Outlying military came in and surrendered their arms, revolvers and hand grenades. I had the misfortune to get guard duty the first time in my five years with the Air Force. It was all due to the cut of the cards. Another chap and I had to guard the surrendered arms and ammunition, which had been piled high in a pigsty. Some of the Kriegs asked for souvenirs, which we let them have. Some took hand grenades to the lake in order to get fish by throwing the exploding grenade into the lake. After several grenades were thrown in, a few small fish came to the gasping to the surface, not sufficient for a feed. By this time, the slave workers had downed tools and refused to milk the cows. The poor cows tethered in their stalls 
with distended others, with no tripping out of them, was a sorry sight. The dairy manager was beside himself with worry about his cows. On going back to my belongings in the cattle pens, I found that the slave workers had been through my gear, taking personal possessions such as my identification tabs, a souvenir cross, pipe, tobacco and cigarettes. Representatives of the army again appeared and informed us that we would be motored to an airfield at Ryan to be flown back to England. They also inquired about any guards that had been brutal to the POWs. The guard that had shot a POW at Marleg and later two, two, two POWs who were getting straw for bedding were soon located and the army soldiers from a Highland division said they would take him to Lubeck he would have to march at the double with a heavy pack back. It is doubtful if he got very far before he was shot trying to escape. On leaving this estate in army lorries, we witnessed the ravages of war as we passed through the countryside, dead cattle, livestock, birds, whatever. One South African who had souvenired the gamekeeper's sporting rifle had target practice with any live geese he spotted on the route. We stopped overnight at a rest camp, run like a Billy Button's holiday camp, and because of the nature of the discipline, it didn't go down too well with the POWs. Another stop over at a tank training barracks, which we were very well appointed with married quarters, etc. We sampled white bread and clean sheets when we took over some quarters, which appeared to have been abandoned in a hurry. The German women, wives of the occupants, these barracks were made to do chores associated with the feeding of our troops. Here I met my brother-in-law, Major James Bartle, who was returning from leave, so I got fresh information of Joan and the family. Next day we were transported to an aerodrome at Rhino. Approaching it, I observed a red cross on a white background painted on the roof of a large building alongside the aerodrome. It appeared that the red cross was only the thing that hadn't been hit. There were patients everywhere, but everything seemed to be in order or under control. The aerodrome was pockmarked with bomb craters. The runways had been hastily repaired for use as there were two Canadian night fighter squadrons stationed there. We were scheduled to take off in Lancaster's the following day and late in the afternoon came the information that the Germans had surrendered. That night there was much jubilation at the aerodrome and a canopy of defensive fireworks was put and the ground crews of the mosquitoes went and obtained all the very cartridges from the aircraft and proceeded to fire at each other with them. Next morning, when the Lancasters arrived, I was surprised to see the lettering ZN on them, denoting they were from 106 Squadron. We formed a queue and the aircraft before us took off, swung on takeoff and went careering across the aerodrome and collapsed in a bomb crater. My aircraft happened to be ZNG for George, bearing the same letters of the aircraft I was shot down in. Forty years later, I was to meet the pilot of this aircraft, Keith Anderson, who was secretary of the PPIs in Melbourne. We landed at Guildford and were shepherded down a white rope corridor at the end of which we were firmly placed on a bench and had white powder sprayed up our pant legs, down the waist, up sleeves, down the neck, and then guarded into an adjoining tent where we had tea and donuts. From Guildford, we were taken to 11 PDRC at Brighton and billeted in the Grand Hotel. In England, they were celebrating the end of the war with Germany. 
And when I rang Joan at Hexton, her father had to go to the local village hall across the road to fetch her. Next day she came down to Brighton and we celebrated the end of blackout in the UK together. After three months leave in the UK, I embarked on the RMS Orion, which carried Australian and New Zealand servicemen returning to their homelands. As the ship sailed from Liverpool, we received news about the first atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan. Halfway across the Atlantic, the Japanese surrendered, and that night, to celebrate the occasion, they fired all the anti-aircraft guns, which made spe a spectacular sight, accompanied by a terrific noise. On arriving in Sydney, I was taken to number 2PD, posting and departure unit, Bradfield Park, where I had started nearly five years earlier. From there, it was a train journey overnight to Melbourne, where my family was waiting for me. After a short sojourn, at number one MRU, Medical Rehabilitation Unit at Warburton. I received my demobilisation from number one posting and demobilisation unit, Ransford, Melbourne, on the 7th of the 1st, 1946. You've been listening to a three-part series of podcasts on Mr Neil Lindsay, and it is a wonderful experience to be able to hear from the man who was there in Germany during World War II, flew in England with the RAF, and is a proud Australian member of the Royal Australian Air Force, a podcast that is part of Australia's history and part of the rich tapestry of history of the Royal Australian Air Force. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.